The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. Welcome, welcome, welcome for our new listeners to the show. Dr. Fleck and I strive to help you take better care of your pets. We do this by discussing the latest in pet health and wellness, highlighting the newest pet trends, giving you the best seasonal advice, and providing recommendations about the latest and the greatest pet care products as well as reviewing important pet safety tips and furnishing you with key money-saving advice. We would love to hear from you. Reach us by email by typing in team at thepetbuzz.com on your computer or phone or contacting us via social media on our channels at The Pet Buzz. So, Dr. Fleck, I have a new game for you. I want to play true or false. I'm going (laughs) to ask you a few questions, and then you tell me the answers, okay? So, Dr. Fleck has done no research on these questions I have for him. He doesn't even know what I'm going to ask him. So, the first question is, it's about Washington State, and we have viewers in Washington State, so you can write us and tell us if you agree. Is Washington State one of the most feline-friendly states in the U.S.? Probably not. Wrong. I wish I had one of those. So it actually is more people in Washington state go online, go onto their search engines and look up questions about felines. How interesting is that? That surprises me. Yeah. I mean, it surprised me, too. It's like the fifth friendliest state in the country for being feline friendly. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. next question. This past weekend, the world became introduced to golfer. He is a coach at a public course in California. His name is Mike Block. When he hit a hole in one at the 15th at the PGA Championship, is he a cat owner? I'm going to guess yes. He's a dog owner. He's a five-year. Mike Block has a five-year-old Labrador, a black lab, and his name is Messi. M-E-S-S-I. Interesting name, right? Yeah. I don't know where that came from. I'm really doing well. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. Last question. Let's see if you can redeem yourself on this one. On an international front, this is international news. Did Hong Kong recently ban CBD products? I would think not. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They actually did. They've closed anything that has to do with CBD for humans and pets. So stores, uh, manufacturing, it's all leaving or has left the building. So no CBD. The ban is in effect in Hong Kong. Wow. Crazy, right? But we're seeing the same thing here. I mean, TV shows will not let you show CBD products for human and pets on television anymore. I mean, you do see them on some radio stations, you know, like Sean Hannity at one point had a CBD sponsor. Mm -hmm. A lot of like, for example, the script stations don't allow it. I think a lot of it has to do with um, the legality of it. I mean, a lot of credit card processors, a lot of people have left the country um, in terms of credit card processing. You know, it's funny because at one point I was talking about some CBD a few years ago on television and I asked one of my clients, I said, um, why 
are you are you guys do you have an office in Ireland? This is like the second or third time I saw CBD companies having offices in Ireland. And they said that at one point when they were working, their credit card processing service cut them off or charged them some ridiculous rate. And a lot of it has to do with the legality of of CBD and the FDA. So really interesting. Well, Dr. Fleck, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself next week. How about that? Okay. Okay. And then you can ask me one week down the road. Okay. Okay. So, well, right now, can you review what we're talking about on today's show? Yep. This week on the Pet Buzz, we're going to find out where the best and worst pet owners live, learn more about pet cancer screening with Auburn University's Dr. Noelle Bergman, discover how often you should bathe your dogs, ascertain how one simple test can determine your dog's age, hear why your dog's nose is dry, discover what Queen Camilla had on her coronation gown, and a 2019 study from the Companion Animal Parasite Council, that's CAPC, the leading source on parasitic diseases that threaten the health of pets and people, shows the prevalence of Lyme disease in dogs increasing in endemic in the endemic Northeast regions and moving in the U.S. regions, not historically considered endemic. This expanding risk of Lyme disease demands heightened vigilance in both protecting our pets, and our families from this devastating illness. Cornell veterinarian Dr. Ali Cohen is joining us to discuss Lyme disease and prevention. Dr. Ali Cohen is an extension veterinarian for the Cornell Ritchie P. Riney Canine Health Center and a clinical instructor for Cornell's Maddie Shelter Medicine Program. She also serves as a contract veterinarian for the Ross Park Zoo in Binghamton. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the Pet Buzz. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let's start out by me asking you, what is Lyme disease and who is affected by it? Yeah, so Lyme disease is a bacterial infection that's spread by ticks. It is one of those infections that's considered a zoonotic disease, which just means that it can affect both humans and dogs. Um, We mostly see it in the Northeast. That's kind of where it originated. But now each year that range is increasing. We see it in the mid-Atlantic, upper Midwest. And every year I feel like that range just grows and grows. You know, it's interesting because in the introduction to the segment, I talked about how we used to see it in the Northeast region. And then, of course, it started going over to the Midwest via Michigan. And now it's kind of really throughout the country. And I know from having um, a guest on uh, a Ph.D. from University of Michigan who was working on a study with mosquitoes. And one of the things, as you probably know, because of global warming, we see mosquitoes showing up in places that they would never show up before. So I guess my next question is, is there a reason or can you tell me why Lyme disease is showing up in parts of the country not known for being, I guess you could say Lyme country, you know what I mean? I think there's a few reasons for that. And this is not necessarily my specialty, but certainly our population is growing. And so we're moving into areas where we're basically our houses are in the woods. Um, And so that's where you really see a lot of that activity with the um, species that ticks like to feed off of. So those chipmunks, mice, they tend to live on the fringe of the forest. And that's where a lot of our houses are. And then especially in the Northeast, and this is true of some of these expanding territories, our deer population is huge. And and that's really like the reservoir of where we have um, deer ticks and and Lyme disease. And in the Northeast, we don't really have a predator that's necessarily keeping those at bay Um, versus in California. They 
those areas actually are seeing some Lyme disease, not as much as around here, but they do have predators like cougars and things like that, that can kind of balance those species that they, they like to use as their, their reservoir host. But yeah, we're, we're just expanding into these wood wooded territories um, and really putting ourselves in the middle of where the populations like to grow. If you've just joined us, we're speaking with veterinarian Dr. Ali Cohen of Cornell Ritchie P. Riney Canine Health Center. So Dr. Cohen, can you review the clinical signs of Lyme disease in animals and tell us uh, what happens if dogs aren't treated? Not necessarily quickly, but what's the worst case scenario? Right. So the Luckily, most of the time dogs will get exposed to limes and they, and they might not even ever become sick. But for those that do become sick, the symptoms will generally occur anywhere from two to five months after a tick bite. So it's not going to be instantaneous. And then the most common signs that we'll, we'll hear pet owners bring in their dog for is they first notice maybe they're not eating, they're not wanting to get up, they're feeling lethargic. Or if they do get up, they see this lameness. So it's often described as like, like they look like they're walking on eggshells or a shifting leg lameness. So they maybe started to be lame on one leg and now suddenly they're lame on another. And then by the time they come to the vet, we might find that they have a high fever or maybe that they have some pain along their joints or even swelling along their joints. If not treated, that usually this can go on to where they're they're really not wanting to eat for days on end. They could get dehydrated for that. So if you notice any of those signs, I mean, that's luckily those are the signs people notice very quickly. My dog's not eating. That's very unlike them. And they tend to bring them into the vet right away. I mean, the reason I asked that question is because we know in people, we know in humans, Lyme disease can be completely debilitating. I think there's a lot that we're still learning about Lyme and how it manifests in in our pets. The Lyme consensus that was kind of developed in 2018 from our internal medicine specialists, the, the general presentation for a dog that's sick with Lyme disease is going to be that acute down and out lameness. Um, and then generally with treatment, they improve pretty quickly. Right. Well, that's great. Um, last question before we take a commercial break. How is it diagnosed? So uh, Lyme is diagnosed pretty much start with the clinical signs that we just mentioned. They're, they're very characteristic. And then once they actually get into the vet, we have a quick blood test that will determine the presence or the absence of antibodies. It's generally relatively inexpensive and we can get an answer very quickly right in office. You know, thank you for talking about how it's relatively inexpensive. Are we talking like $50 or $100? It's really going to depend. I would say 50 is a fair estimate that could be lower if you're in more of like a rural setting, higher if you're more in an urban setting based on sure. how the, the pricing is set, but um, not something where you're looking at, you know, $400 blood work to get an answer. We're going to take a commercial break uh, and come back with Dr. Cohen because we have a lot more questions because we want to make sure you're prepared for the summer. You know, we talk about gearing up for summer, but this is some basic gearing up for your pet's health this summer. Stay with us. Also, in our next segment is Celebrity Pet Buzz and, of course, Flex Facts. And we'll be back in a buzz-worthy moment. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Flex.
back. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz. The show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Well, we're back with veterinarian Dr. Allie Cohen from Cornell University, one of my favorite vet schools. At one point, I served on the New York State Veterinary Board, and I was there with a lot of folks from Cornell. So I have a soft spot in my heart for those folks from Cornell. We're discussing Lyme disease prevention for our dogs. You know, actually, it's funny because you mentioned in our last segment, you mentioned Labradors. And, you know, up until recently, the Labrador was the most popular AKC registered dog. So I know people up by you have a lot of Labradors and really around the country and a lot of those Labradors hunt. So in some ways, I'm not surprised that we see a lot of Labradors with Lyme disease. Yeah, and it's hard to know if there's something deeper going on with the breed itself or if they are just really the ones that are put in the most high risk uh, scenarios where they can pick up the ticks. And, and that's that's the correlation that we're seeing. So let's let's continue to talk about money, the treatment for Lyme disease. What is it and is it expensive? The treatment is going to be antibiotics, and most commonly, that's going to be doxycycline for about four weeks. That's the average duration that we'll be treating them um, after a diagnosis. Um, I would say, by and large, it's relatively inexpensive. Again, I know that's kind of a, we're using the vague, generally inexpensive, because um, some of that will come down to the pet size, you know, what's going to, the treatment for a Great Dane versus a Chihuahua, the price is going to be different, sure. um, but it's relatively affordable. We're often sending home pain medications too in, in the duration where we're waiting for those antibiotics to kick in just to help with some of that joint discomfort. So that's generally going to be like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication. Um, but when you have a pet with with Lyme and they start that doxycycline. I mean, it's, it's like night and day once the antibiotics kick in that they go from this dog that can barely walk. And now they're acting just like themselves. And that's where it's important to make sure that you finish that full course of antibiotics because Lyme is a type of bacteria. It's actually shaped kind of like a a screw, it goes in this spiral rotation and it literally will spiral into the, the deeper tissues. And so that's where it can be trickier to treat. And if you don't finish the full course, you could maybe risk some relapse. Two last questions that I want to run through in 30 seconds or less. So when you remove that tick, whether you think a tick twister or not, um, should we be wearing gloves? And then once we pull the tick off in that critical time period, that 24 to 48 hours before it gets engorged and really starts sucking that blood, what should we put that tick in? Should it be a small container with alcohol? Yeah. So alcohol is usually my go-to to kill these ticks. You, um, I would say if you have concerns or maybe you're immunocompromised or what, you, you can wear gloves. You really don't need to just avoid the, the mouth part. Like that's where it could potentially attach onto you. 
Um, but it takes quite some time for a tick to really set up shop. So the risk should be low, but if you want to be safe or you just think they're gross in general, by all means wear gloves. Um, and then I do, I stick it in with a little bit of alcohol that'll kill it right away. Um, if you really want to know exactly what type type of tick you can pop online, you can use some of Cornell's, uh, resources to, to, to identify that tick or bring it into your vet and they can maybe help uh, decrease some anxiety if they say, Hey, this isn't even a deer tick. So the chances of Lyme are pretty low. And my last question, um, you talked about high risk areas. So if we perhaps went to the companion animal parasitic council, would we find maps of high risk areas around the country? Uh, yeah, usually you can see kind of graphed out where we're seeing, um, an increase. Yeah. Uh, but when I say high risk areas, to me, that's anywhere with tall grasses, densely wooded area, areas with a lot of leaf debris mm -hmm. uh, or kind of brush and that type of like walking through that is where the ticks like to crawl up the tall grass and they sit there. It's called questing and they wait for a warm blooded mammal to go by where they can sense their CO2 that they're breathing out and uh, hop onto the animal there. So that's that's what I mean with high risk areas. Well, Dr. Cohen, it was a pleasure having you come and visit with me today. Before you go, can you give us a website that we could check out to learn more about you as well as more about ticks? Yeah, of course. So if you, I'm from the Cornell Rhiney Canine Health Center. So our website's canine.vet.cornell.edu. And from there, you can learn all about the different research projects we have going on, or you can delve into our section called health topics where you can learn more about specific diseases like Lyme disease. Just to remind you, that was Dr. Ali Cohen, the extension veterinarian for the Cornell Richard P. Riney Canine Health Center and a clinical instructor for Cornell's Maddie Shelter Medicine Program. Royal pets are the focus of this week's Celebrity Pet Buzz. And now the latest, the latest news, news about, about celebrities, celebrities and their pets. pets. Queen Camilla, the wife of King Charles of the United Kingdom, honored her rescue dogs on her coronation dress. Near the trim of her gown, her Jack Russell Terriers, Bluebell and Beth were embroidered in gold. Queen Camilla adopted Beth in 2011 and Bluebell in 2012 from South London's Battersea Dogs and Cat Home, of which she serves as the shelter's patron. The elegant dress made of white, Potiswas silk fabric was designed by British fashion designer Bruce Oldfield, who has been designing for Queen Camilla for at least 10 years. You know, when I think about this special add on to the dress, I'm really not surprised because Camilla also embroidered references to her, her family and her children. And also, as we found out, her dogs. But on this special occasion, or on special occasions in our lives, like weddings and other celebrations, we dog owners want all of our loved ones to and four-legged family members to be present. Unfortunately, Queen Camilla's dogs could not be with her literally on Coronation Day, but they were with her in spirit as well as on her dress. You're up, Dr. Fleck, with Flex Facts. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers! I want the truth! Dr. Fleck, what are we talking about today? Dry noses, or maybe even some dry, crusty noses. You know, when you have a wet, wet nose, 
people think their dog is healthy, but if it's dry, they're wondering whether there's there's medical issues. But it really isn't necessarily a medical issue if it's a little dry, but if it's crusty dry, you probably have some health issues. So you might ask the question, well, what causes the dog to have a dry nose? Well, you think about it, when the pet sleeps, he respires pretty heavily, or let's take him outside to go to the dog park or take to dog walks, like you take your dogs to every day. Um, that exercise and those dog park activities and fetching will make the dog breathe very hard, and that can help make the nose very dry. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's unhealthy, but it becomes unhealthy when it becomes crusty. So how else could it become a, a problem? That would be with the environmental elements that are out there. Um, during seasons like with uh, oak trees, when they're sending off all of their miserable little elements to the environment, that that can be irritating to the nose. But we forget about the sun. The sun is very, very caustic to the, to the nose and something that we have to be very concerned about and pay attention to. And it's especially noted on the smaller snout or the brachiocephalic dogs, like the pug, the toy spaniels, the bulldogs, the French bulldogs. You mean the brachiocephalic dogs? Yes. What should we do about this? Well, at home, the first thing you're going to attempt to do is soften that nose up with some moisturizer. You got to make sure that they have sunscreen. And of course, the only sunscreen that is really authorized by the FDA is the EpiPet sunscreen. And when it gets real bad, what else you have to do? Have an appointment with your vet and have the vet help you discover what's the best care for that dry nose. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio, where we focus on enhancing the bond between pets and their people. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Let's kick off this segment with the I Likey of the Week. It's genius. It's to die for. I like it. Well, you know, I just discovered this and I wanted to share, especially for you pet owners who have rescue pets. EpiPaws is the maker of an epigenetics test kit that can help you determine a pet's estimated birthday with a quick oral swab. Epigenetics is the study of molecules and mechanisms that influence the expression of genes without changing the DNA sequence. In certain areas of the DNA genome, there are changes with age, thereby allowing scientists to use it to estimate age with a lot of accuracy. This is exactly what the company reviews to estimate your pet's age. So after you give your pet the quick oral swab, you put it in an envelope and mail it, and you wait for the results in six to eight weeks. Well, according to 
EpiPause age is more than a number. There are benefits of knowing your pet's age. When you learn your pet's age, you'll also learn how to be more proactive in your pet care regime. Things that change with age include the food that they eat, the amount of exercise and the type of exercise they should get, the health test that should be performed and how often. Additionally, if a problem pops up, knowing the age of your pet can really help narrow down what your dog or cat's new symptoms or behavior means. The EpiPaw Age Kit is $120 at EpiPaws.com. That's E-P-I-P-A-W-S.com. Check it out. Incoming mail delivery. You've got mail. Dr. Fleck, you have a question from Tim Howard from Madison, New Jersey. He wants to know how often he should bathe his Vishla. Boy, that is such a great question. I'm glad that he presented that question because there's a lot of confusion in the industry about what you should do. There's empirical studies. There's evidence-based studies. Empirical just means like you got testimonial or the veterinarian has experiences working with what he or she does. The evidence-based studies are done by researchers, and that's called science. So what we're going to really talk about, because there is little evidence-based studies, is what empirically what we should see and what we should expect. So bathing is very important. It's going to be important for hygiene, and it's important for treatment. Hygiene is when the dog rolls in the mud and gets all dirty or starts having odor. You should really be bathing for that reason. The other reasons are is when the dog has skin or coat issues, you go to the veterinarian. They recommend a treatment protocol, which usually includes bathing. So the next question is, how often should you be bathing? Well, there's a lot of debate about that. But if you use the quality shampoos that are necessary for good hygiene and good medical care, you could bathe as frequently as every day, but you don't want to do that. What I recommend is that the short-coated, smaller dogs and the longer hair, smaller dogs be bathed once a week. If it's a long-haired, larger dog, you bathe it on a regular basis twice a week. But when you bathe, make sure that you spend at least five to 10 minutes with lathering up the pet so that the shampoo can actually penetrate into the hair shaft and into the skin and get the desirable effect. What about the types of shampoo? The big mistake that everybody makes is Dawn. Somebody recommended Dawn, even some veterinarians. That really is a very caustic and damaging shampoo to be using on your pet. On a week-to-week basis. But if you're in a tornado or a storm, we know this. Scientists recommend using Dawn to strip the coat, to decontaminate the coat, because it will get all of the debris out of a coat. And after they do that, you must use then a regular pet shampoo to neutralize the damaging effects that the Dawn soap will do. You want to make sure that the shampoo is a quality shampoo. The other mistake that you sometimes is that a medicated shampoo that a doctor may recommend for a skin issue can be caustic on the pet too if you're using it for an everyday shampoo or an every week shampoo. So what you should do then is use a different shampoo 
when you're using for every, every use shampooing. What do you expect from the shampoo? You want the shampoo to cleanse. You want it to exfoliate, get rid of all the bad stuff, including the allergens. Moisturize, condition, and bring a pleasant odor. Cancer is the most common cause of death in dogs over two years of age in the United States, with up to half of all dogs over age 10 developing the disease at some point. Moreover, when cancer diagnosis is suspected, the dog must undergo a variety of costly, time-consuming, and potentially painful diagnostic tests. Most importantly, don't wait until the last minute. Have your dog screened for cancer as a preventative and early detection method. Well, joining us today to discuss canine cancer screening is veterinarian Dr. Noelle Bergman. She is currently an assistant clinical professor of the Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine Oncology Service. Dr. Bergman, thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Buzz today. We're happy to visit with you and discuss such an important topic. Greetings, Dr. Bergman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Bergman, I guess to start out this interview, I'm going to ask the big $100 million question. What does it cost to treat a dog with cancer? Um, well, the cost of cancer treatment is highly variable. It high, it's highly dependent on the type of cancer that we're treating. Um, and it's also dependent on the owner's individual goals or that family's goals. We also see a wide range in the cost of veterinary care in general, depending on the region of the country you're in. Um, so for example, the cost of vet care in the Southeast might be quite different compared to New York or California. So Dr. Bergen, why is there such a higher rate in cancer in dogs nowadays? It seems like it just keeps going up. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's more cancer necessarily. There might be. It does seem that we're very busy in the oncology world, um, sadly. But I speculate that perhaps our pets are living longer. And also veterinarians have gotten much better at detecting cancer. We've learned a lot over the years. Um, and also, I think pet owners are more willing to look for that diagnosis and then treat it. I don't know that there truly is more cancer, um, but we do see more diagnoses. If you've just joined us, we're talking with veterinary oncologist, Dr. Noelle Bergman, about canine cancer screening. I mean, here's a question that I'm always confronted with, um, just about breeds in general um, and illness or specific breed traits. So when adopting or purchasing a dog of your dreams, because so many people love dogs, whether they get the dog of their dreams at a shelter or from a yeah. breeder, mm -hmm. why should a potential dog owner conduct health research regarding cancer? I think it's a good idea um, to obviously to do your research about whatever whatever type of dog you're planning to adopt um, as, as far as cancer goes, um, as well as other diseases. You know, we see other serious conditions that can affect certain breeds. And I think that if you are kind of aware of what to look for, it's a it's something that you can, um, as a pet owner, uh, look for in your pet at home. Maybe there are some symptoms your veterinarian can alert you to, um, and also it can help you prepare potentially for what financial hurdles you might be facing, depending on what type of treatment your pet may need. Um, but it's really, it's something that's really hard to predict because, you know, yes, there are certain breeds that are predisposed to certain types of cancer, but we see mixed breeds 
all the time in the oncology department. So, um, you know, I think it's it can be really hard to predict what the future may hold, but always good to be prepared, like you said. <laughs> I think if cancer is costing up to about 15000 for all of the, the treatments and the doctor's visits and the medication and everything, and if you are deciding that you want to get, for example, a golden retriever, which seems to be in this country, the face of a dog mm-hmm. that does have cancer, um, it's a good idea to know that because that way, maybe you will decide not to get a golden retriever. You might get another breed, but then again, we never know because a lot of dogs, whether they're mixed breeds or purebred dogs can develop cancer. Can you just give us a little bit of a list of dogs uh, other than the golden um, that is susceptible? Yeah, sure. Um, Boxers, um, any of the doodles. So labradoodles, golden doodles, those are um, very common. Um, but again, I, we see a wide range, sadly, sure. you know, just a wide range of breeds. And I have toy breeds. So what about toy breeds? I know the pug maybe I think is susceptible to cancer. Is that correct? Uh, one of the most types of skin cancer that we diagnose in dogs that is called mast cell tumor. And there are, you know, those, the pugs, those uh, smushy faced breeds, the bulldogs and those guys, they are predisposed to getting mast cell tumors, um, certainly. Well, we have to take a hard commercial break, but when we return, we will continue our discussion, this fascinating discussion with Dr. Bergman about canine cancer screening. Also, in our next segment, we are reviewing some global pet news. And of course, before we leave, we always want to tell you something good. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, epi-pet.com. EpiPet is another proud sponsor of the Pet Buzz. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck here at the Pet Buzz. We are urban, suburban, and and country. We are continuing our conversation with veterinary gynecologist Dr. Noelle Bergman about pet cancer screenings. Dr. Bergman, what are some of the more common types of cancer that you're seeing with dogs? Um, We see a lot of mast cell tumors, like I mentioned earlier. Um, we also see a fair number of other skin tumors, um, such as soft tissue sarcomas. Um, and then we, we see a lot of patients with lymphoma. Why is it important to screen your dog for cancer? And can you talk a little bit about how it's done? Um, we think that the earlier that we can diagnose cancer, so earlier stages of disease, that we see the best outcomes as far as once treatment's pursued um, and higher cure rates in general. Um, so the earlier we can diagnose it, the better, typically. Um, one of the, you know, certainly cancer screening can be done at all sorts of levels. Um, and there's not one test that's perfect. Um, One of the things that can be done just at the pet parent level is just looking for any new lumps or bumps and bringing those to the attention of your veterinarian. So that's on the skin and the oral cavity. Um, As as soon as those are seen, especially when they're small, that's the best time to bring that to your vet's attention instead of waiting and seeing what happens. What form of cancer screening you're able to do? What else can you advise parents in terms of, you know, cancer treatments and, or actually even having the discussion with your veterinarian? 
Um, I think if cancer is diagnosed or suspected, um, I think it's a good idea to discuss what the goals are for your pet. Um, Cause I think that that's high, that's very different depending on every family. So when your pet is diagnosed with cancer, what other considerations should you talk to your vet about? Yeah, when reviewing the treatment options, I think it's a good idea to talk about um, what's realistic as far as your your lifestyle, as well as what type of budget you're working with, um, because that allows the veterinarian or the oncologist um, to prioritize certain treatment options or certain diagnostics um, based on what um, the budget is and the goals that you have for your pet. One of the things I find so interesting um, these days is that our president is um, funding cancer trials at the NIH, and many of those trials are including dogs, which um, I guess that's part of what is called the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, I believe. Why are you looking at human cancer and dog cancer? Um, similar, like, is there a similarity in the cancers that dogs and humans get? Yeah, in a lot of instances there are. And I think that there's a lot that um, we as veterinarians learn from human medicine and, and, and vice versa, obviously. Um, people and pets, we share the same environment. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest reasons that there, you know, that there's a lot of um, overlap that we see in, in those cancers. And there are times that we encounter really unusual forms of cancer in dogs and cats, obviously. And we don't necessarily have a standard of care or standard treatment for that. And there are times that we dig into the, dive into the human literature to, to just kind of make a treatment plan for those guys. So I want to make this perfectly clear. So when I'm talking about these dog cancer trials, this is not a laboratory where they're injecting the dogs with cancer. It's people are asked if their dogs have cancer and they want to participate in these trials. And one of the reasons um, this is existing is because from what I understand, and you can you know, affirm this, Dr. Berkman, is that dog and human tissue are very similar, more so than laboratory rats. Is that correct? Yes. And these are naturally occurring cancers in dogs. So they're not, like you said, in mice, they're um, inducing a cancerous process and trying to use that to replicate what's happening in a person. And that's not necessarily always translated um, into an actual real life cancer patient. And so these are dogs that have naturally developing cancer that we're studying. Last question, just a few words about why screening once again is so important. I want to leave everyone with that, that lasting impression. An early cancer diagnosis, if we can screen and find cancer at an early stage, that gives those patients the best chance for a cure, the best chance for the best outcome possible. Um, we know that if we can catch it before cancer has spread, that's often a much better prognosis, best, much better outlook for that patient and likely easier treatments. Such great information, Dr. Bergman. I hope that you can come back because really, I'm sure cats get cancer too. And I think our listening audience would love to learn more about feline cancer. It's just such a part of, I guess, the health information these days. So I really thank you for joining us today. Um, before we go, can you give us a website where we can we can learn more? Absolutely. Um one that I like to direct people to is the vetcancersociety.org website. There's resources for pet owners 
you know, if their pet's been diagnosed with cancer, there are some great resources. Um, there's also a really great way to look. It's also a really great resource for looking for different clinical trials that are offered across the country. If your pet's been diagnosed with cancer and you're interested in looking into a clinical trial, you can look on that website as well. Well, just to remind you, that was Dr. Noelle Bergman. She is an assistant clinical professor at Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine on Ecology Service. So where do Americans' worst-behaved dog owners live and who's top dog when it comes to fur baby etiquette? And now, Pet Buzz News from around the globe. As the saying goes, there's no such thing as bad dogs, just bad owners. And falling into bad habits can impact what your neighbors think about both of you. So where do America's worst behaved dog owners live? And in which locale do the most thoughtful owners reside? Well, the Dog Advisory Council analyzed Twitter data to find the cities that tweet the most about bad dog behavior, such as not cleaning up after their pooches, letting their dogs off leash in public, and leaving their pup to bark or howl through the night. Well, the results are in. Tucson, Arizona is home to America's most considerate dog owners. The country's worst behaved dog owners live in Pittsburgh. I found that really surprising. Seattle is the U.S. poop capital. Dog owners in Newark are the most likely to let their dogs off leash in public. People in Cleveland were most likely to complain about dogs barking and howling at night. So the big question is, are you a good boy or a good girl pet parent or just a naughty dog owner inflicting your bad behavior on the residents of your city? We want to know. Tell us. It's always good to end the show on a good note. News of the day got you down? No worries. Pet trendologist Charlotte Reed is here with Tell Me Something Good. This is a necessity like air and oxygen. Tell me something good. I loved this video that I found online at dodo.com. It's about a rescue pup found in the woods. Rescuers worked very hard in developing the trust of this abandoned dog. Each day they went to visit the young dog. I'm going to say he was probably about 18 weeks old and they brought him food and water as well as tried to spend time with him to get acquainted with him, but also for him to get acquainted with them. Eventually they caught the dog by well, by way of, they caught, eventually they bought, they eventually they caught the dog by way of a crate They put food in it, and once he went in, the door closed. But eventually, they took him home to the rescue center where he was exposed to touch. And you can only imagine this dog had been on his own for God knows how long. You can only imagine how this dog would respond to touch when he'd been alone for so long. They would pet him or touch him, and he would stand still. He would freeze. He was also exposed to people, pets, until he developed confidence. And what a journey it was. It was a short video. It was only three and a half minutes, but I took so much in from that video. It just reinforced for me how much animal rescuers passionately work to save animals' lives. They bring them back from the abyss. They bring them back from the abyss so that they can live a, 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 a good life. Now that's something good.
Well, Dr. Fleck, it's a wrap. It is definitely a wrap. Great show. Great show. Yeah, definitely a really great show. So we want to give you a preview of next week's show. So next week, we're talking about gearing up for a great pet summer and including your dog in a wedding. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, it's been a big trend. I mean. Have you ever seen any dog at a wedding? Actually, I actually had uh, a friend called me up and she said, my friend does not like her mother-in-law. She's a drunk and she's forced me to bring this poodle to the wedding. So a few weeks ago, she had fallen down the stairs with the poodle in her arm. She broke her arm and the poodle broke a leg. She goes, all I want you to do is come to the wedding and sit at the table with her and then take care of the poodle. So I figured, you know, that kind of seems like maybe a good thing I can offer because more and more people think about having their pets at their wedding. And I actually did. When her son danced with her, I hung out and took care of the poodle and I've been to two weddings where the pets were part of the wedding. I don't want to give it all the stories no, away. No, no. But anyway, can you um, give special thanks to our guests? Yes, yeah, special thanks to our great guests this week, veterinarians Dr. Allie Cohen and Dr. Noel Bergman. Great. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin coat and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. If you have a question, write to us at teamatthepetbuzz.com. We will cover it on next week's show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. www.thepetbuzz.com Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.